Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. President Biden has big plans for infrastructure. He's called for a $2 trillion plan to rebuild roads, bridges and highways, and invest in mass transit, among other ideas. How will our region benefit? Proponents of a high-speed rail initiative called North Atlantic Rail hope the federal government will help pay for the project. Today, where we live, we take a look. North Atlantic Rail came up on the show last month when I spoke with Hartford Mayor Luke Brown, and he's the co-chair of the initiative. He talked to us about what it could mean for states like Connecticut, but we had more questions about the estimated $105 billion project, a project that would include tunnels under Long Island Sound. Coming up, we'll talk to Save the Sound, and we'll hear from an author about the environmental, economic, and social effects of high-speed rail. First, let's talk about Biden's, President Biden's plan for infrastructure investment. Joining us now on Zoom is Connecticut U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who's a member of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Senator Blumenthal, welcome back to the show. Wonderful to be with you again. Thanks for having me. It's hard to believe it's been a year now that we've all been dealing with this pandemic. We know, Senator, that uh, daily commutes for many have has changed radically with many working from home. So when we think about our rail system, especially in our state, uh, what comes to mind about what it will look like post-COVID and the, the, the idea that many people may not be commuting five days a week? There's no question that commuting is down significantly. I live in Fairfield County where a lot of the commuting traffic is into New York, but a lot of it is also from New York into Stamford by rail. And ridership is down. At one point it was 85%. It has risen slightly since then. In the short term, no question that rail ridership will continue to be below previous levels. But in the long term, rail is part of our future. Widening the roads is difficult in, if not impossible, in most places, it's environmentally disastrous. And so we need more mass transit and rail, make it more reliable, quicker, more comfortable, and uh, in effect, safer as well. So I think that investment in rail is very much part of our future. And as you know, President Biden is known by many as Amtrak Joe. He rode the rails for many years. I used to see him when he was vice president and I was returning to Connecticut by Amtrak. He would be on the rail going back to Wilmington, even as vice president. And of course, as senator, he did it regularly. So I think he has a very good sense and it's a bipartisan issue. 
You mentioned ridership is down. And when we think about this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, I think the House is expected to vote today. Is any of that money going to help uh, rail transportation like the MTA and others who've you know, seen their revenue drastically uh, cut down and you know worried about layoffs and, and service eliminations, Senator? Great question. And the answer is yes. The previous package in December, the $906 billion program had about $4 billion for the MTA, which is our regional commuting service, Metro North. And this package, the American Rescue Plan, has about $6 billion out of the $30 billion that it's going to mass transit generally. Let's be very blunt. That amount is nowhere near enough which is why we need a massive next package that focuses on infrastructure and will provide the billions more needed, not just to keep employed the people who are there now, conductors, mechanics, drivers on Metro North and the rail systems that serve Connecticut, but also expand them, straighten the tracks to make for higher speeds, buy new cars, the M8 cars on Metro North are very popular, but we need more of them, and essentially invest in high-speed rail for Connecticut. Again, you mentioned uh, we need more money for infrastructure. Uh, President Biden, even on the campaign trail, talking about a $2 trillion investment in infrastructure. But how do we pay for it, Senator? There are innovative financing means. In fact, I have co-sponsored a number of them with Republican colleagues, an infrastructure bank, a public financing authority, which would issue debt separately from the federal government financed out of the proceeds and revenue from the rail and other means of mass transportation. It is a very viable and significant way to finance these kinds of public projects out of the revenue and proceeds from the projects themselves. And I think it's an idea whose time finally has come. I helped to lead a number of them with my Democratic colleague, Michael Bennett, Republicans like Roy Blunt, who unfortunately is retiring, but others have supported it as well. And you know, the, the thing about uh, rail, yes, commuting's down now, but people at some point are going to want to go back to their offices, maybe not five days a week, maybe only four, but the idea of working separately in isolation forever, I think will be uh, antithetical to the work ethic that a lot of companies and firms have. You're hearing Senator Richard Blumenthal here on Where We Live as we talk about infrastructure investment under the Biden administration. Again, the president um, has long called for at least a $2 trillion investment in infrastructure. And infrastructure means many different things. And oftentimes people think about bridges and roads and highways. But we wanted to talk specifically about rail because of, uh, again, how many residents uh, depend on it uh, in our state, uh, commuting Senator Blumenthal. Uh, One rail project that we talked about recently with Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin was North Atlantic Rail, which is a proposal to bring high-speed rail to the Northeast. Uh, Mayor Bronin making the case that part of this uh, $2 trillion infrastructure investment that uh, President Biden uh, hopes to to bring uh, to communities uh, should be to help this high-speed project in the Northeast Corridor. I believe you've had some concerns about this project. Can you tell us about your thoughts of, again, high-speed rail and some of 
of the, the concerns that you have? I think the uh, Atlantic Rail proposal is, a, is an interesting and promising idea. I'm open to learning more about it. I have questions about the cost. They're saying it would be $100 billion. That sounds like a lot of money to me, but also I think it may be far less than actually is required to build a new expanded line in Long Island and then tunnel under the sound. I opposed projects involving tunneling and cabling, cables when I was attorney general. I have environmental concerns. We've worked very hard and spent a lot of money to improve Long Island Sound. I want to be assured that this kind of tunneling is in fact as safe as the proponents say. And generally my priority is to improve the rail going through Fairfield County in Connecticut. That's where I think the spending ought to be to straighten those tracks, make it quicker, more reliable, safer, less costly, so that people ride in Connecticut from Bridgeport to New York, providing for economic development in Bridgeport finally which is possible if we have a better rail system serving them. And of course, the New Haven to Hartford line, more investment there. This line uh, that is contemplated from Hartford to Boston would require rights of way, possibly very expensive. I'd like to know more about where exactly that route is going to go and whether there are exorbitant expenses involved in buying those rights of way and property if necessary. There are as many questions as answers, in fact, more questions than answers at this point. And I would never rule it out, but expanding the Long Island route so that then a tunnel can be built across Long Island Sound to New Haven seems possibly a very indirect and expensive way to serve the same purpose. And I'd like to see the priority, the rails in Connecticut, more cars, more tracks, more reliable, safer, quicker, less costly service there. Again, you can join our conversation with Senator Blumenthal, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I brought up uh, your concerns, your environmental uh, concern, concerns about this project with Mayor Bronin. Uh, this is what he shared with us. I've had some really good conversations with Senator Blumenthal. I, obviously, we're all going to be sensitive to environmental concerns. I think that uh, one important thing to, to correct, though, or to understand is that the the aspect of this project, which is uh, which includes a tunnel under Long Island Sound, uh, would not have a an impact on the ecology of the sound. It's possible with existing technology to do that at a deep enough level that it really leaves the ecology of the sound undisturbed. And how do you respond to Mayor Bronin's uh, comment that this would not have the environmental impact that maybe some of these other projects that we had talked about as when you were Attorney General uh, pipelines um, would have? There is no smarter, more dedicated mayor in the state of Connecticut, maybe in the country, than Luke Bronin. I have immense respect for him, and I know he cares deeply about Long Island Sound. So I want to talk more to him and also the scientists, engineers, technology folks, and the environmentalists who have a sense about what the tunnel can do, what the expense will be, and what the impacts would be. As I say, I haven't ruled it out. I just want to learn more.
We're going to be talking with Save the Sound in just a few minutes, uh, but first I'm with, with us is Senator Richard Blumenthal. So are there ways to speed up, uh, realistic ways to speed up service from New York City to Hartford uh, currently, if this is not the way to go, Senator Blumenthal? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, the line from New York to New Haven used to be actually quicker than it is now. If we straighten the track, and improve it, you know, uh, the derailment that occurred several years ago illustrated the need for better maintenance, even as to the track we have now. So I think that more cars and better tracks would help tremendously make it more popular. The folks who say, you know, we should spend less on rail because ridership is down simply are counting on a spiraling downward use of rail because the less attractive the service, the fewer people will ride it. They'll use cars instead and our roads will be more clogged, our rail will be more polluted. So I think improving the service from New York to New Haven and then from New Haven to Hartford, the line there has been tremendously popular, growing in usage. And I think that contemplating as well, a line from Hartford to Boston as well, uh, an upgraded line there, as well as the upgrading the line from Hartford to Springfield. And also we need to uh, contemplate better service from, from New Haven and Bridgeport and other places to Waterbury and Danbury link our state with much improved rail. And again, ridership would rise there too. So we really owe it to many of the people who depend on rail, even now, our essential workers, the folks who work in hospitals, who serve as grocery workers, people who depend on mass transportation, really will use it more and will have better lives if we provide better service and we can make environmental advances as well. And what about the the future of fares, Senator Blumenthal? We know that Metro North has seen price hikes, and that was before the pandemic. And again, the MTA taking quite a hit when it comes to uh, you know raising revenue when people weren't riding as much as they they had been. Uh, you mentioned essential workers, and so making sure that this service is still affordable to them. Uh, that's a, a great question. Uh, lower costs, I think, are possible if we have more riders. You know, the mass production rationale works on mass transportation as well. The more people riding the rail, in fact, the more rail routes and trains that we have going, the more likely it is that we can reduce the fares. And there are ways also to accommodate lower income people and folks who ride frequently with discounts for uh, frequent use and so forth. Uh, we're fortunate to have an administration in Hartford, a state administration with Governor Lamont and Commissioner of Transportation, Joe Giletti, who are very attuned. Joe Giletti, in fact, uh, ran the New York uh, transportation system that is Metro North 
for a while and really revived it, reinvigorated it in ways that were very positive. So I think uh, that rail will have a bright future if we invest in it. I think the key here is investing in it to make it more reliable, safer, more frequent, on time, and of course, lower cost. We just have a few minutes left with Senator Blumenthal. If you have questions about the overall rail system in our state or just mass transit in general, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, singling out the North Atlantic Rail Project alone, uh, right now projected to be 109 or $105 billion uh, to build, that's a lot of money. And so when we think about are there, are there better ways to use public money in this post-COVID world, uh, Senator Blumenthal, when we think about infrastructure, the fact that so many parts of our state and country struggle with broadband, for instance? You know, I've been a leading advocate in the United States Senate of expanding broadband, and I'm so glad you mentioned it. We, what we've learned and what's been highlighted by the pandemic is the lack of connectivity, high-speed internet service in many, many homes, as many as one-third of the homes with uh, children of color in Connecticut. Seniors lack connectivity, high-speed broadband service. So Connecticut, even a metropolitan and sophisticated state like ours, lacks sufficient connectivity and the country as well. My hope is that the FCC will use some of the programs and money that I've advocated and strongly urged them to use, Outgoing chairman Ajit Pai resisted it under the Trump administration. I think we will have a different FCC chairman. And I've been advocating for, as a matter of fact, a Connecticut native, um, Commissioner Rosenworcel. Uh, Jessica Rosenworcel is a strong advocate of broadband. She's come to Connecticut. My invitation to advocate for it. So I think it should be part of an infrastructure program. Likewise, better ports and airports and also VA facilities and schools should be regarded as infrastructure. But I'm unconvinced as yet that $100 billion and probably more is the future of our rail system in the North American project. I think it will turn out to cost more. And so I need to be convinced that it's really worth doing, not to say I would rule it out, but let's improve the rail in Fairfield County going from New York to New Haven that serves towns and cities there as a first priority. And then Hartford to uh, New Haven to Hartford as well as part of that priority. And uh, we can think about and talk about the other projects that may be available. But I do think that a commitment to rail has to be part of our infrastructure future. And I really believe that this administration is committed to it in a way that the last administration talked about doing and never actually accomplished. Uh, we started this uh, segment talking about uh, President Biden's uh, plans, uh, he hopes to right, to put forth a $2 trillion infrastructure investment uh, across the country. But in the meantime, I, I believe you're a supporter of something called an intercity rail trust fund uh, to help, uh, again, rails. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
I think there ought to be a commitment to a trust fund that provide a reliable funding source for our rail. Again, uh, innovative, but in a sense, the model is well developed for a trust fund that is independent of the whims of public officials, money committed to that trust fund, including money coming from proceeds that are generated by the rails and it would be used to rebuild, to renovate, to maintain, to repair all of the infrastructure needs and improve those rail systems so that they can be higher speed, but safe. You know, the rest of the world is ahead of our country on rail. High-speed rail is a fact of life in other countries in many, many routes, and we are in danger of falling way behind. So this, this kind of proposal that I've made could well be combined with a bigger infrastructure program such as President Biden is proposing. In Washington, D.C., the idea of an infrastructure week became a joke under President Trump. Every week was infrastructure week. Nothing happened. I think things will happen under President Biden. I'm glad you talked about uh, what other countries have been doing with high-speed rail. We'll be talking about that coming up here on Where We Live. But I want to thank U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal for joining us first. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk more about this proposed North Atlantic Rail project, again, connecting New York and Boston, possibly through a 16-mile tunnel under Long Island Sound. What could be the environmental impacts? We'll talk more about that after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. High-speed rail in our region could lead to less people driving, and that helps reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But how would construction of a multi-billion dollar North Atlantic rail project affect Long Island Sound and local communities? Joining us now on, on the phone is Kurt Johnson. He's president of Save the Sound. Kurt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Uh, we felt that it was important to, to hear from Save the Sound after we heard from Mayor Bronin again uh, last month, who co-chairs this North Atlantic Rail project. Uh, he uh, had said that a possible 16 miles of tunnel under Long Island Sound would not have an impact on the ecology of the sound. I'm curious your group's uh, thoughts about this project. Well, we did have a conversation, a first conversation with Luke Bronin and Bobby Arrell and his team last week. And, uh, you know, as the senator said, we have uh, questions. We don't have uh, answers. The um, initial information that was shared with us was a bit promising in terms of, first, where do the tunnels start from? What are the impacts? And the claim that they shared was that they will start within the right-of-ways of the railroad, both on Long Island, Long Island Railroad, and, and here in uh, New Haven with, uh, excuse me, in Milford with Metro North. So that's promising. Uh, the more concerning issues are what about the tunneling under the sound? What they told us is that this will be um, approximately 100 feet under the sound. 
Uh, that sounds promising. I want to stress that um, there have been many of these tunnels built around the world, and it's now time, I think, for this team, in other words, the North Atlantic team, to pull together the environmental impact analysis that's been done throughout the world and show us what the impacts have been. Uh, you know, there's a concern, certainly, whenever you're boring about the lubricants that are being used and what happens to those lubricants, because obviously when you're moving through sediment, you um, you need to lubricate uh, the boring uh, effort. So a lot of questions that we have about that, uh, but if, in fact, it's hundreds of feet under the sound, uh, it has the potential, perhaps, of having few, if uh, fewer, much fewer impacts on the sound, but there's much more to be learned there. I'm glad you brought that point up because a, a massive tunnel under Long Island Sound is not the type of project that there's a lot of precedence for in the United States, but again, abroad uh, there is. And as you mentioned, uh, learning from other countries about what the environmental impact could be for that uh, that technology used here, Kurt. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the first things that the team should do is bring those studies to the public uh, to save the sound, but to all citizens and, and let us know what those studies are showing uh, and what the impacts have been. I just want to say another concern we have is, um, you know, bridges traditionally have been significantly cheaper than tunnels. We'd be very, very concerned about a bridge going across Long Island Sound to, you know, for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, one is that uh, visually, Impacts on the sound uh, underneath where the pillars are, obviously, you know, impacts on flow, uh, stormwater impacts, a whole variety of major, major concerns. And, of course, a nightmare could be that, uh, you know, it's found that, oh, we just don't have enough money for the tunnel, so we need to do a, uh, a bridge. And, oh, by the way, we might as well widen it to bring cars across and then you start getting into enormous environmental impacts on many, many areas. So um, that's something that Save the Sound stressed very, very strongly to uh, you know, to Mayor Bronin and his team, those concerns. Uh, we know in our state, uh, when we think about greenhouse gas emissions, by far the largest contributor to our carbon footprint is transportation, more than a third. And so when we think about infrastructure investment, but also keeping climate as uh, something that's front and center, I mean, what are some of the, the projects or initiatives that you think uh, law policymakers should be focusing on, Kurt? Well, uh, this could be part of that solution. We absolutely need to electrify our transit system and our transport system in our state and in our region. And a great step forward towards doing that is the Transportation Climate Initiative proposal that actually had a hearing yesterday before our General Assembly. I'm really proud, and I think we all should be proud, that Connecticut, uh, under Governor Lamont's leadership, is one of the first four jurisdictions to move this to their legislature. It will ultimately be an 11-state compact, so to speak, to uh, establish a cap-and-trade program very similar to what we have in our electrical uh, generation system right now in the object is to drive down carbon emissions to encourage 
uh, use of transit and to generate some dollars that can be poured back into a renewable future, which is desperately needed um, because while high-speed rail could be a solution and it would bring our cities in New England much closer together by time, the real big question becomes if we were to move in that direction, what does a rider do when they step out of a station in Hartford or in Providence or in New Haven? Uh, where are the opportunities for moving to where they need to move to, whether it's in that city uh, by bus transit, whether it's between uh, two different cities or towns in uh, Connecticut through express bus service? There needs to be a systematic approach to clean transit, and I want to put a plug in for clean bus transit as well, which can service many more communities. Um, bus service is the lifeline in Connecticut to working people uh, to get to jobs. Um, we, we need to think of this as a systematic approach. So in other words, when people get off that rail, do they have opportunities to use transit to get to where they need to go? Uh, going back to TCI or the Transportation Climate Initiative, again, uh, capping pollution uh, by requiring wholesalers uh, who sell gas and diesel uh, to purchase allowances for pollution uh, created by these products, uh, that will uh, cause a, a little bit of an increase at the gas pump, and that is something that, you know, uh, residents, some residents are concerned about. And so how do we address uh, those concerns? Because oftentimes it's being called a, a gas tax, this idea that a little bit of that cost will go back to the consumer, Kurt. Well, first of all, it is absolutely not a gas tax. As you pointed out, uh, it will be a cap-and-trade system on wholesalers coming into the state. Uh, second of all, the uh, directive here or the the idea is to, over time, slowly bring down that cap and uh, create dollars that can create incentives uh, for people to move towards a less carbon-intensive way of getting around the state, whether that is investments in clean transit, again, electric bus systems, whether that is uh, investments in uh, pedestrian and uh, bicycle improvements, whether that is you know improved express bus systems, or whether that is incentives and uh, for you know purchasing a electric car and or uh, having the electrical uh, system within the house, there's there's just no question that this is the direction we have to move in if we're going to survive as a planet. And uh, you know we are going to be paying one way or the other for the impacts of climate change. And do we in Connecticut want to be on the forefront? of protecting our state, protecting our neighborhoods from increased flooding, uh, tremendous impacts from uh, upstream flooding as well as coastal impacts and disease caused by heat and heat exhaustion, or uh, is it a business-as-usual situation? Uh, Kurt, do you think Connecticut's being aggressive enough? As you mentioned, the clock is ticking on climate change, and we know, again, transportation is a big emitter. Well, I think, you know, TCI is a great example of where we have a choice to actually start implementing. And uh, it will come in effect in 2023. 
We desperately need some more dollars to support express bus service, as an example. We need more dollars to support Metro North, as um, the senator said. And this is a way to do that. Uh, the governor's bill, uh, governor's proposal right now is to cut both of those services, or at least the dollars going into those services. This can help uh, fill and expand those services. We need to be moving in that direction, or we're going to be uh, literally choking to death on both the pollution here, as well as uh, you know, feeling the the horrendous impacts of climate change. Kurt Johnson again is president of Save the Sound. Kurt, thank you for joining us to give us your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're going to talk more about high-speed rail, not only in the United States, but abroad. What lessons can we learn from other countries? You can join us, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the General Assembly is shifting into high gear as lawmakers work to get their legislation out of committee by the end of the month. On the next Where We Live, House Majority Leader Representative Jason Rojas joins us. We talk about many issues, including bills related to law enforcement and racial justice issues. We hope you join us with your questions. That's tomorrow. Now, policymakers in various states have talked about bringing high-speed rail to the U.S. for years. Yet after decades of discussion, there's not a lot to show for it. Why is it that high-speed rail is part of daily life in so many countries, but not here. And is high-speed rail really a good investment priority when residents, especially in cities, rely on underfunded transit services like buses? My next guest wrote a book about the environmental, economic, and social effects of high-speed rail. Elizabeth Deakins on Zoom with us, Professor Emerita of City and Regional Planning and Urban Design at University of California, Berkeley, and co-editor of High-Speed Rail and Sustainability, Decision-Making and the Political Economy of Investment. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good morning. As I mentioned, you and a colleague put together a book looking at uh, taking a look at high-speed rail, lessons from other countries. Why is it that our country is so far behind when we look at high-speed rail in you know, Europe and Asia? Part of the reason is we decided in the 1950s to invest in the interstate highway system. And so some of the investment that might have gone into a rail system, which in the United States, by the way, was a private rail system in that period, uh, went into highway building where we paid 90 cents on the dollar for the interstate highway system. Uh, In other countries, rail was uh, mostly a publicly run system and public dollars, government dollars, went into reinvesting in rebuilding rail, especially in Europe and Japan, where war damage meant that it was absolutely necessary for them to rebuild their systems. Uh, The Northeast Corridor is one of the busiest uh, corridors in the country. When we think about uh, the conditions that determine whether a project could be successful or not, high-speed rail, what are some of the factors that uh, policymakers should be looking at? Well, I think the first thing we have to talk about is what do we actually mean by high-speed rail, because there are at least three different varieties. And one is a rail that's faster in an urban setting 
And that could be for trips that are 40 or 50 miles long. And uh, there, a lot of times what we're looking to do is speed up rail service by offering express trains. Or in California, we have something called the Baby Bullet that runs between San Francisco and San Jose at uh, speeds of up to 80 miles an hour. And it's uh, 20, 30 or 40% faster than driving in that corridor. And so it makes a huge difference in comfort and convenience for people who are making that kind of a trip. Second option is high-speed rail as an alternative to air travel for trips and for car trips in some cases, for trips that are in the, oh, let's say 100 to 400 mile length. And that's a place where it's really an inner city trip and high-speed rail is connecting cities. And I think in uh, your case, in, in the Connecticut case, there's a little bit of both there. There's some trips that would be uh, long commute trips and some trips that are inner city trips. And so uh, you might uh, look at it accordingly and look at, at which are the best investments under the circumstances for the kind of market you're trying to serve. Uh, in California, where, again, Berkeley's located, obviously, there's been an ongoing high-speed rail project. So um, can you talk a little bit about the political issues and other delays when you know, looking at evaluating that system and, again, how other countries uh, manage uh, those kinds of factors? Well, in, in California, we don't have a long history of rail use, and so it's uh, a major new investment in rail to build high speed. It's not... Uh, quite as easy as it would be in a place with a lot of rail already in place where upgrades are possible. So one of the things in California is a lot of it's on new right-of-way and uh, it's a new system. And in fact, part of the debate in California has been, should we fix the existing rail we have first and try to make that faster and more effective and then build the linkages from the north to the south? We have a long, thin state. So north and south distances are, can be hundreds of miles. So uh, improving that system uh, raises that question immediately. And the second piece of it is that California has uh, very environmentally sensitive areas, and uh, those include areas where there are lots of endangered species. It also includes areas where we have very valuable farmlands that uh, the high-speed rail would be traversing, and so it's been an issue about costs there. And uh, we have mountains and earthquakes to deal with, so lots of things that can drive up costs that don't necessarily exist in every other place, but certainly do exist in, say, Japan or Italy, where earthquakes and, and, and high-value crops and croplands are also have been an issue for them. I'm glad you brought um, up environmental concerns, Elizabeth. When we were talking with Senator Blumenthal and Save the Sound about this proposed North Atlantic Rail project, it would require tunneling about 16 miles under the Sound. It sounds fairly ambitious, but what do we know about that tunneling technology? And again, not a lot of precedent for something like that here in, in this country. Deep bore tunneling has advanced really rapidly in the last 20 or 30 years. And I don't know the specifics of the proposal. I think your previous speaker uh, was correct in saying that you're gonna to need to look at exactly what's being proposed. If you go deep enough, it's it can be actually less expensive than shallower tunnels in some cases. And the environmental impacts would be greatly reduced. So uh, it really depends on what's feasible in, in your particular context, and that requires its own environmental studies to see what the effects would be. Um, other than that, uh, the impacts would be less in general than a bridge uh, or, or other kinds of land-based 
strategies. So I, I don't know enough about the particular particulars of what's being proposed. It's something that does merit another look, though, because, again, the technology has greatly improved from what it was even 20 years ago. We started the hour talking again about um, President Biden's uh, campaign promise, right, to to try to get a $2 trillion investment in infrastructure. Uh, when we think about other parts of the U.S., are there are there better areas that are contenders for a high-speed rail project? Well, the interesting thing about the Northeast Corridor is you already have a population that uh, has the rail habit. Uh, both for long distance trips and for shorter trips. And the Boston-Washington corridor is a great example of that. So, uh, but it also has some serious limitations where rail needs to be improved. The rail bed needs to be upgraded. Um, you need to straighten out some of the curves as Senator Blumenthal uh, pointed out, and that could increase speed. The other strategy that might work really well in a Connecticut kind of environment where you have a lot of cities that are 50 miles apart uh, is, is to, in fact, speed up existing services as a, a, as a first strategy. And that's what Germany has done in, in its system. It didn't try to build a whole system of high-speed rail. It tried to uh, up, it upgrades rail to high speed where there's demand on a an, link or set of links by link basis. So from city pair to city pair, from section to section, as they need to do major rehabilitation or replacement as uh, the rail reaches its, it, the end of its useful life. So those are things that would really make a difference. Also having better quality cars and better maintenance of cars and trackage makes a huge difference because you get uh, fewer delays, more reliable service, and you can get a positive feedback system going where rail becomes faster, more reliable, comfortable, more people want to ride it. Um, as more people ride it, you can afford more service. As you get more service, you can, can in fact, uh, uh, provide better quality service or, and, and also differentiated service. You can provide skip stop service if you build sidings, for example, so the trains can pass each other. Um, and you can build uh, systems that offer both local service and express service in, in that way. So I think there are lots of possibilities like that. As for elsewhere in the United States, the places that have been looked at very seriously are some of the Florida, uh, Orlando to Tampa to Miami kinds of linkages. And then the, uh, the, the Texas Triangle, which is three or four cities in Texas, actually. It's Houston to Dallas and then to Austin and often to San Antonio as well. And there are a lot of people who live in that area, a lot of economic development and a lot of communication. They're a little too far apart for it to be a comfortable drive. And uh, so a rail system might be an attractive option in, in that market as well. And then California um, continues to build on its high-speed rail system just rather slowly. When we think about the, the rail that currently exists in, in our state in the Northeast Corridor, you know, the Metro North stops at pretty much every uh, town along uh, the, the rail line, and, and that uh, can help with accessibility, Elizabeth, but not necessarily a speed uh, for our region. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and the way that other countries have dealt with that, and, and we could deal with that, would be to build uh, little bypasses, basically, uh, places where the slower trains can move out of the way of the express services. And you basically operate express services for some of the where they might stop at relatively few stations 
and then local services that stop frequently. And you see that uh, on the baby bullet between San Francisco and San Jose, that the, it has uh, very few stops when it's going express. It stops uh, 10 or 15 times when it's, uh, when it's going with local services. And that'll make a big difference. The Japanese do that on the Shinkansen lines as well. You can take a train in those corridors between, for example, Osaka and Kyoto, which goes express, or you could take a train that stops at the smaller cities in between. And um, if you have enough ridership, you can actually speed up some of those local services. So you, you have to look at the schedule carefully to make sure it's stopping at the place you want to go, because it might stop at three places, or it might stop at a different three places in, in between those, those uh, two major hubs. And, and so you can get uh, a lot of different services put together as long as you have passing uh, opportunities for the express services. When we talk about other countries and learning from them, uh, we think about uh, high-speed rail in the United States. Uh, we, we brought up the, the last mile issue. If we really wanted uh, to be serious about this, um, policymakers doing better at providing intra-city bus, uh, for example, Elizabeth? Uh, Inner city bus is a way to do it. Um, it's not quite as flexible or right now quite as uh, 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 clean if we're running diesel buses as, as a train could be, especially electrification of the system. But uh, we're beginning to see in the United States and in other countries uh, electric buses being used. So there are new technologies in buses that are going to make them cleaner and more attractive. Express buses can serve a lot of trips that are in the shorter distance uh, quite comfortably. So that's a possibility. But I want to make the point that it's not just a question of getting from one metro area to another metro area or one city to another city. You also need to get your destination and you need to get to the station at, at your home end as well. So uh, thinking about how to do that in a way that's, that's clean, environmentally friendly is important. The, uh, the options are there though. We can talk about shuttles for the first and last miles. We can talk about connections to express buses that link to rail stations for somewhat longer trips. And those are ways of creating a, a network that actually will serve the whole metro area. That's super important for the United States because we don't have the densities that we see in in, uh, in Italy or France, much less in Japan. The, the Japanese uh, corridor where the Shinkansen runs is about twice as dense as Boston to New York on average. Again, when we think about some of these new projects that are being proposed, the price tag is really huge. And, and looking at, you know, what makes sense versus spending the money on improvements to, to infrastructure, Elizabeth? Uh, well, that's one of the reasons that I talk quite often about uh, upgrading in places where there are bottlenecks. So uh, rather than thinking about building an entirely new system, sometimes it's possible to build um, that bypass link that lets the train go faster or straighten out a particularly bad curve um, or simply maintaining the, the track uh, with welded rail and, and good ballast so that the train uh, doesn't have to slow down for safety reasons. So those are all reason, ways that we can do it. Those aren't always the cheapest strategy, however, because it turns out that sometimes it uh, simply trying to stay on the existing track and go around a bottleneck 
because the land costs will be as expensive as building a whole new uh, line uh, a little further away in a somewhat less expensive uh, place. So you have to look at it case by case, corridor by corridor to figure out what your best strategy would be. Um, nothing's very cheap. And uh, we have to also say compared to what? Um, highway widening is expensive. That can cost millions of dollars a mile, a lane mile. Uh, if you have, especially if you have to buy right of way through urban areas, it's a very expensive strategy. And it's one that has uh, severe environmental impacts in most cases. So uh, not necessarily an easy thing to do. And in much of the United States, in urban areas, we've already taken advantage of what we can build in the existing right-of-way. So we are talking about having to buy a new right-of-way. So look along, look at what's next to your highways and think about whether you really want to widen the highway by taking uh, a bigger swath of that area. Um, down the road, uh, some of my engineering colleagues are hopeful that automation may allow uh, vehicles to operate safely at a higher density. Uh, by uh, You and I wouldn't be driving them, the vehicles would be driving themselves. <laughs> and if, if that were to happen, uh, we might be able to make better use of existing uh, right-of-way. And there are lots of experiments going on now with automated highways all over the, the world certainly in the United States and uh, the major car companies, as well as some of the upstart car companies are experimenting with automation as well. So we, we're seeing more and more automation in cars, which might mean that we can get more vehicles into the into the, the existing roadways. Yeah. Where we park oh. them is going to be a question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, we're almost out of time, Elizabeth Deacon. I want to thank you, co-editor of High Speed Rail and Sustainability, Decision-Making and the Political Economy Investment of Investment. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>